Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Has anyone heard of box breathing? Probably. In the last two years, you've heard of it. Is it just me? Am I the only one that learned breathing exercises over the last two years? I think for the last 14 or 15 months, this has been the most anxious, sort of borderline depressive time we've ever experienced. Now, maybe right now we're kind of experiencing a little bit of reprieve from that. Things are getting a little better, but I don't know about you, but my anxiety, my stress, has been on another level. Now, I do have four children, and I just had another one. But I have plenty of friends and plenty of pastor friends that are suffering mightily from mental health. Mightily from mental health. A few great preacher friends of mine have left the ministry. Some have even gone as far to end their own life. This is not an easy time for any of us. Now, I know in America, we, we typically lead with bravado and machismo. You know, it doesn't, it's not purely a masculine thing. I think it's also an American thing. It's the land of the free and the home of the brave. We eat corn on the cob during the 4th of July. We get to wear the stars and stripes. It's America pride. Well, of course, all of that. But man, underlying all of us, truthfully, is a deep desire and a need to be known and to experience with others the anxiety we're all feeling. I'll prove it to you with some statistics because that's the sort of person I am. I, I need proof, okay? So check this out. 36% of Americans told an American Psychiat Psychiatric Association poll that the pandemic has led to a serious impact on their mental health. No, go figure, right? 36%. But according to a People Say poll, 31% of Americans say they're sleeping less because of the coronavirus-related anxiety. Now, 36% seems low to me. So I found this, this poll here, and this is recent. This is the average share of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder and or depressive disorder. And look at the rates. January 20, uh, two, uh, I guess, how do, you, how do we say that now? 2019, not 2019. 2019, 11%. Still a pretty good number. But in two years, that number has quadrupled. That is significant. And I don't know how that number's not higher either. I guess the rest of those people are extrovert or introverts. They just, they like being in their house, you know, get away from me. I don't, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this quiet time. I was going to avoid you anyway, but instead of being rude, I have to do it because the government says so, right? <laughs> Rihanna Holmes, a trauma therapist specializing in disaster psychology. Check, check out this quote. She says this, my private practice has seen a huge uptick in new clients because people are feeling really anxious. Interestingly, Many of them don't necessarily relate to coronavirus. But if someone has pre-existing conditions like anxiety or depression, stress is likely to bring out problematic symptoms in light of the pandemic. Depression and anxiety thrive on, get this, social isolation and disruption of routine. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we've all experienced some form of social isolation and certainly disruption of routine. So I guess I'll just ask the question again. Who feels that this morning? I feel it. 
just in a moment of transparency, it's been a very difficult 15 months for me. Incredibly difficult 15 months. I would not be here right now if it wasn't for COVID. My entire life has been upended. But even if it hasn't, the, the sort of situation that's been going on in your own heart and soul is probably bubbling to the top as a result of coronavirus-related disruption in your routine. Addiction's at an all-time high. Even not having an addiction, just stupid behavior you don't want to be doing is at an all-time high. That's what's taking place. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about clinical, sometimes called clinical anxiety. I actually have suffered from clinical anxiety early in my life, and I still do to some degree. But I'm actually talking about what I guess I'll call this chronic societal background hum of anxiety. You know that hum you feel like you don't know there's a fan on, and then you turn it off, and you go, oh, that was, that was actually pretty loud. I didn't realize how loud I needed to talk to get over all of that noise. That's where we're at. The constant state of stress that has everyone's finger on a trigger in case a political conversation breaks out impromptu. I was just at my, my wife's family's house over the last week. I'll tell you what, don't mention the wrong political party there or it will be, it'll be the wild, wild west. People have got their hands, it's bang, 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 bang. You know what I'm saying? It's very, very stressful place to be. Even the fact with the election, even though we thought the, the, the election, to some degree, has kind of calmed the, the, the sort of background hum, right? We've got these two presidential candidates and we've got sort of these, the tension, right? The protests and such. A lot of that's died down, but there's still tension. But I will tell you, remote, I'll read this to you. Remote psych, psychiatric therapy services like Talkspace, and like Brightside, I don't know if you've used these, have seen an increase in demand. Talkspace has experienced a 65% increase in customers since mid-February. That's post-inauguration, yeah? Brightside has in, in, seen a 50% increase. So what's the answer to the mayhem? What's the answer to all of the, the sort of struggle? What, what, what do we look on the internet for in, in order to solve these problems? Well, usually, how about a blog? All of this crippling anxiety and depression will be solved with a blog. 10 steps to what? Light a candle, deep breathing exercises, get rid of meat, go vegan. I mean, that's literally one of the articles. Now, praise God for you vegans. That probably is not going to fix all of your crippling anxiety and depression. These are some of the things we get. Three ways to avoid your parents, during, uh, during, your parents politics during, uh, polit during the holidays, right? That's another one. What to say to the left during a conversation about Trump? Or how about a book? Usually 10 steps to this, four steps to that. Some guru on TV, CNN, Nightline, NBC, Fox News telling you this is how you solve your problems, right? Or how about some political mental theater to fix the problem? This is my favorite. How about a treat yourself day? <laughs> Massage, shopping at the mall? Probably not the mall. Amazon, right? Not going to the mall anymore, Pack Sun, Zoomies, eh, you know? Probably Anthropology Online will do it, okay? Lululemon, or we, we call them Treat Yourselves Days, but in a political or techni corporate technological jargon, we don't call them Treat Yourself Days, we call them, does anyone know? Corporate Wellness Days, right? Mental Health Days, right? Politic, this sort of theater. Now that'll solve all my problems, right? One half day off, it couldn't be the soul, the soul crushing work you're doing from home in your dark basement with your baby on your lap. 
It's that you need four to eight hours away to go jump rope in the garden, right? But that's what we're getting. Our world is so geeked up on strategy. It is all about the tips, the tricks, the latest fads. How do we fix this, right, with a snap of the finger? What Instagram ad is gonna solve your problem? So here's my assertion. What society wants to give us is more technique and strategy, but what the world needs is a people that have learned how to stand in the face of the anxious culture of our day, to remain unmoved by the stress and anxiety and emotion of society. And here's the big assertion, only Jesus can provide you the character you need to make that happen and nothing else can. That's my assertion. Now it doesn't feel like that's true because I'm a Christian and I struggle with mental health all of the time. And many of you probably feel the same way. But in order to make this happen, we need to achieve something called, I'll give you a big word, it's called self-differentiation, okay? And this is a guy, a guy named Edwin Freeman wrote this in a book called Failure of Nerve, and it's a, quite, a lo- quite a long book, I wouldn't recommend it, but I'll give you my definition of sort of what self-differentiation is. So, it's the ability to stand in and experience the anxiety, stress, and emotion of others, and be unaffected. These types of people have clarity of their identity and as a result are unlikely to be lost in the anxious emotional processes of society. Now, doesn't that sound nice? The hurricanes around us moving at a pace and we can be unaffected by it. Now, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you need to be a stoic. I'm not saying you need to develop some sort of white knuckle self-control that just, it doesn't upset you. But if you can get to the place where Christ has influenced you in a way where you are the least anxious presence in the room, then you're on the right track, okay? Now, what is our text? how does our text help us in this? Well, the Apostle Paul, he's writing what many theologians believe is his very last letter, okay? He's an old man at this point. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And Paul wants to contrast Timothy's faithful ministry with that of a few sort of false teachers, false pastors in their day. Paul then gives us the proper response with dealing with false teachers in their day. And he's going to tell us how to deal with one another in conflict and deal with one another's anxiety. And then we can, I guess, assume that he's also talking about internet debates and triggering as well, right? We can assume that, of course. So, Paul gives Timothy and us four principles to embed in our character in order to overcome the anxious noise of the culture and the anxious noise that's within us. So what's the first thing he asks us to do? He says this, grow up and follow God. Grow up and follow God. And where do we see that? 2 Timothy 2.22. Paul says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, Paul here says, flee youthful passions. What is he talking about? He's actually talking about youthful passions of all sorts and kinds. You think about it, sometimes they're sinful desires, sometimes they're not sinful, they're just dumb. He's talking about these sort of desires that take um, take us out of our element from pursuing who God's created us to be, and we focus in and lock in on something lesser than. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. Now you can infer he's talking about sexual immorality, maybe uh, addiction, uh, quarreling, arguing. And for our purposes, we can really focus in on that because the rest of the context tells us he is actually talking about sort of a conflict that's taking place. 
So we can see this come up. Many of us find ourselves kind of, think about it like this. I'm at my wife's family house. She's right here. This could get me in trouble. But the arguing that would take place anytime a sort of political conversation is mentioned is significant, right? I mentioned people fingers on the trigger. If you are on the, po- if you are on the, on the brink of brinking down, every time someone mentions something you dislike, you may be pursuing youthful passions, okay? Because adults, in theory, should have the ability to have a sane conversation without getting so upset that they have to leave the room. But that does happen all of the time. It doesn't just happen with parents and kids. It happens with friends, happens with spouses, happens with siblings. If we're on the brink, we're like, I just can't even be in the room with this person at this point. Then we may be accidentally falling into this sort of youthful passions, okay? The problem is, for kids, youthful passions, it's understandable, right? If my, I don't know, eight-year-old gets upset because she wanted to watch something on TV and I'm not letting her, it's annoying, but it's understandable. She's eight. She's still learning life. If your 14-year-old daughter or son is upset because you won't let them go to the movies and see a rated R film, I don't know. Maybe you let them see rated R films. I don't know. Then it's understandable that they're upset and throwing a fit because they're young, right? But when you're an adult, many of us aren't actually children. And we're adults. So these arguments demonstrate a lack of self-control while mildly consequential as a child is extraordinarily consequential as an adult. We do adult-sized damage when we have childlike fits. And when we're on the brink, this is a symptom of our inability to be self-differentiated, isn't it? Because the second someone says something, we're triggered. An age-old adult who quarrels like a teenager does adult-sized damage, okay? That's clear. So what's the solution? What's the solution? And I just gave you a bunch of problems, like how do I solve this? We don't automatically grow in maturity. So Paul says here, flee useful passions and pursue what? He says righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, when I was younger, I used to skip past like sort of lists of words because I was like, okay, Paul's just rattling off a bunch of good things, but he's actually being incredibly intentional with the words he's using. Do you know that just because you get older, you don't automatically grow in these four things? Do you know that just because you're now 47, you're not more loving and more faithful? Do you know that you could be 21 and be incredibly loving and incredibly peaceful? Spiritual maturity and age are not the same thing. They do not rise. They're not directly proportional. So what we have to do is be incredibly intentional. It's a myth that time on earth equals maturity. It's actually a formula, and Paul's giving it here, because my wife said, well, you're just throwing a bunch of stuff at people. Why don't you give them a solution? And I said, well, Paul gives the solution. I don't have to do that. It's right here. He gives us three things. Flee youthful passions. That's number one. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, so become more mature, pursue maturity. And then he says, the third thing, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So run from bad things, go towards good things, and do it with people that know Jesus well and are a great example to you. Now, if you're looking for, like, if you're trying to diagnose where you've missed it, look at these three things. Are you fleeing youthful passions. If not, start there. If you're fleeing youthful passions and you've got some good godly friends, but you're not pursuing the things that are godly, then start there. 
And if you figured it out, if you fling youthful passion and you're pursuing righteousness, but you just keep stumbling in whatever way it is, maybe you've got some sort of issue you're working through, but you haven't done it with people around you that are good, godly people that can hold you accountable, that you can be transparent with, then maybe that's your issue. Paul Lays makes it very clear for us. Again, isolating ourselves from others will cause us to not be able to do this well, even if we're trying to be faithful. You've gotta be with other people in community. And by the way, everyone's got junk. So if you're thinking, I can't share this because they'll think something of me, then you don't understand the human condition. Because the human condition would so have it that all of us are sinners, no one is righteous, and it's only by Christ that we're able to then pursue that holiness. And so we're all dealing with something, even if we're not showing it. What else does Paul give us? He then says this, stop making an argument and start making a difference. Stop making an argument and start making a difference. Look at verse 24. And the Lord's servant, that's us, must not be quarrelsome. That's a nice way of saying like egghead, you know, ignorant. He's basically saying, don't be, don't be stupid, okay? Figure it out, okay? That's what Paul's doing here. Must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil. You know, maybe we're not in a season of disagreement right now. I, I certainly know that during the uh, last year we have been because of the pressure that COVID has kind of created on all of us. You know, there's protests, there's elections, all of these things are kind of making us, putting us on edge. But even if you're not, so oftentimes we disagree with people in these arguments because we're at the edge of ourselves. And our chief goal is not actually to uh, help them or anything, it's actually to get them to see that they're wrong. I mean, if I had a if I, if I were to put a percentage on the number of arguments I had that were mostly about making sure the other person knew they were wrong, uh, my wife would probably take the over on this, but I would say 90%. I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. I don't know about you. We actually just want them to see where they're wrong. You know? But uh, Pastor Andy Stanley says, he asks this question quite frequently, would you like to make a point or would you like to make a difference? Do you want to make a point with somebody or do you want to make a difference with somebody? Making a point's easy, at least for me. All I have to do is go print out papers like this, put all of the arguments on them, study up, and by study, I mean YouTube videos and blogs, and now I'm armed and I can go into the war and make a point. But making a difference is a lot more nuanced because making a difference isn't about me, it's about them. And when I'm dealing with other people, it's helpful to try to remember that they're a soul and they're a person and they're like me. They have fears, they have doubts. It's important to notice. It's dangerous to watch political pundits online and on television because oftentimes they're just trying to make a point and not make a difference. You have to be very discerning about that. Yes, that's a great point, that's a great point, that's a great point. Those are facts. Human beings aren't pure fact. They're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. That means their feelings as well, their emotions. They're not pure facts. We're not robots, logic machines. It's important. So for some of us, me included, making a difference in someone was actually never the goal. It was actually just getting something off my chest, making sure that they knew they were wrong. But in order to get something off your chest and to make a point and make a difference, you have to see someone as less than human in order to do that. You have to see them as a shadow 
They're a shadow. They're a, they're a, a target. There's something not quite fully human with emotions, because if they are, then I have to acknowledge that this may be really hurtful to them. We have to shut that in, shut that off in ourselves, and it's so much easier to argue with shadows than it is to argue with a person. That's why we're so, we have so much courage online, right? Clickety clack, keyboard warriors, right? Dumb warriors on your phone. It's easy to blast off a really rude YouTube comment when you don't even know the person and they're just a shadow. But it's hard, it hurts people. But in order to make a person, in order to make a difference, we're gonna have to see people as souls, not shadows. This means what Paul says, kind to everyone. So the word everyone's really convicting for me. Let's be honest. When I think of everyone, I think, oh yeah, people with my last name, people that I care about, people that share my, I don't know, ideologies, people that I went to college with, people maybe with my similar background and affinities. Be kind to everyone. Paul's not rebuking us. He actually is un- he's actually trying to get us to understand that this path will actually be far better for your life than it would be just to make a point. He understands that, hey, being godly is a good thing for you, even if you're, all your desires are saying to do something opposite. Able to teach, this means that we wanna have the heart of a teacher when we're dealing with people. I don't know about you, but I had really, I had some bad teachers in high school. And when they go like, what's, what's wrong with you? Why don't you understand? I said it like I said it. Don't you understand? That's not the heart of a teacher. It's the heart of someone who doesn't like their job very much. We're trying to get people to understand as best we can. So if we're teaching somebody the Bible, we want to be receptive to their pushbacks. Hey, maybe this person had a really difficult childhood with, with Bible. Maybe they've got everything figured out. They don't feel like they don't need the Bible. Or maybe they've been wounded by someone in church and they don't want anything to do with it. Maybe that's some of us here. And then finally, patiently enduring evil. Yeah, the, the evil, that's another one, right? I mean, I mean, patiently enduring evil? Can we just say like patiently enduring annoying people or people that are getting, you know, getting on my nerves? No, evil. Paul's like pretty clear. Jesus patiently endured evil, not just annoying people. Okay, that was Peter. I mean, he called him Satan once. Okay, that's, that's bad. Like Jesus calls you Satan. Not great, right? But yet he stood in with Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time, who had him executed. And he was patiently enduring evil in that respect. He wasn't picketing, arguing for Prop 268. He, he just understood his purpose and took what was coming. What else does Paul teach us here in this text? He says, patience leads to repentance, just like we were talking about. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Oof, I don't like that word. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. A lot of trigger words here. (laughs) First one being gentleness. How difficult is it to correct somebody with gentleness? Difficult. Yeah. People spend time opposing you. Maybe they dislike you. Maybe they're, they're annoyed at you. Maybe they, they're seeing you as a shadow and not a soul. And yet you have to stand in there with patience. You know, patience may be the difference maker in someone's relationship with Jesus. You may get upset at somebody. For those that are maybe, I'll just call Christians here today. 
and you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, the gospel is the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross and rose three days later, you're sharing that with somebody, and they're like, I, I don't, just don't need that, I don't understand, and it's like, okay, no worries. Like, this is not on my timing anyway, let's take our time. But if you get frustrated, you're like, I'm done, I'm sick of it. Where does that lead? It's difficult. This could lead to people's repentance, but even so, even not talking specifically about someone's salvation, it, it could lead, your patience could lead to people's knowledge of the actual truth. The truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about their specific situation. Maybe someone's dealing with something really difficult and your patience with them will allow you to, to be the thing that they'll see that will allow them to understand what they're dealing with is actually their own fault and they need to work on it, they need to get better. This is important. Sometimes people, by the way, are not just wrong in an argument when we're making a point with them. Sometimes they are spiritually what Romans 1 calls suppressing the truth by their own unrighteousness. Sometimes it's actually a spiritual reason why they're not actually willing to receive what you're giving them. And so you getting upset or me getting upset at them and leaving and saying, hey, I'm, you're, you're not giving me back. You're not reciprocating the love and affection I'm giving you. Well, Good luck with that in any relationship. Now, what's the whole point of our mission anyway, right? For those of you that are Christians, the mission is to go forth and make disciples. You think we just get to shout out a few sentences and people are just going to be receptive to that immediately? This is a lifelong journey with some people. Sometimes it's a coffee a, coffee a week for 30 years. Sometimes it's 10 years. I'm not that old, Okay. When Brian baptized me, Pastor Ryan, he had a lot of hair, okay? <laughs> a lot of hair. He looks better bald, in my opinion. He said he wasn't handsome. I think he's handsome. I'll, be, I'll throw it out to Tammy. Good job, okay? <laughs> At 40, sometimes it goes the opposite direction, let's be honest. What was I even saying, man? I went off on a tangent. My goodness. You're just handsome. I really don't remember what I was actually saying. The point of our mission is to share the gospel with people. And if we're getting caught up in these little arguments or these little quarrels or these little situations where we're creating drama, or if we're passive aggressive and trying to bury them and focus in on other things so no one knows about them, both of those are the two sides of the same coin, then we're actually dealing with something called a MacGuffin. Does anyone know what a MacGuffin is? In filmmaking, there's something called a MacGuffin. I'll, I'll give you my definition. It's an object, event, or person that characters in a story greatly value. So much so that the nearly the whole plot of the movie revolves around it, despite that thing not being terribly important to the actual unfolding of the story. So this is massive thing that's incredibly this kooky thing that everyone's focused on. Turns out that the whole story is about something else. We focus so much on these little mini MacGuffins in our life where I've got this drama with my sister, or I've got this issue with my work, or you know, I'm dealing with this, or sometimes it's really serious. Sometimes it's something incredibly serious that we're dealing with. It turns out that the actual unfolding of our story, there's something more broad, more important, more significant, and that's what God is trying to make you. And I'm gonna explain that in a second. But first, what else does Paul tell us? Stand in and be used by God. Seems cliche, what the heck does that mean? Verse 20, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. Think about an old house, gold, silver, but also wood and clay. So they've got some really nice stuff and you got some really kind of old temporary stuff. Some for honorable use, gold and silver, some for dishonorable use, wood and clay. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. 
If you stop using the dishonorable stuff, you'll be honorable. You'll be set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. The master of the house there, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God, ready for every good work. So in the midst of all the sort of false teachings and quarrelings that Paul is dealing with in his day, he decides to use an analogy that will be helpful for us today in the church. Now in the church and in society, there are people that are useful and unuseful. There are faithful and unfaithful, right? There are reliable and unreliable, okay? That's what he's talking about. Gold, silver, imperishable, honorable, holy, wood and clay, brittle. I don't know if you've ever like gone to kind of a hipster market and bought like clay things, because that's really popular right now in Portland. And it, they break fast, okay? They look cool. You can't really use them for anything. We all have an opportunity in God's family to be used in honorable, amazing ways. And how do we do that? By fleeing these silly disputes that are creating the anxiety in our life, the sort of unreliability in our lives, the sort of quarreling that takes place, and then we can be used by God. Now, for many of us, this MacGuffin sort of MacGuffin thing in our life. Now, think about briefly, just think about the thing right now that's probably most distracting in your life. It's probably the thing you've, one, haven't told anybody, or two, told everyone about one of those things. Now, think about that thing in your life. Though that thing is probably what's taking you away from what God is trying to do, your real purpose. That could be your job. It could be your money. It could even be good things like intellect. It could be pain and hardship. It could be sex. All sometimes of these things could be good, but they don't hold their weight when it, terms, when, it, when it comes to giving you your purpose. And sometimes, again, positivity things, you think you've made it, you got the paycheck, you've got the job, you've got the spouse, you've finally done it. All of these MacGuffins are going to cause you to sort of manage your life rather than actually bringing healing to the thing that's going to allow God to use you. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you're stuck on your MacGuffin, the real purpose of the story is happening elsewhere. And you're so locked in, you're distracted. And instead of dealing with your trauma, you're going to manage your trauma. And the way I know this is because I've done this. Because for years, I, my, my, kind of my story is that I grew up in a really rough neighborhood as a kid. Grew up getting our house broken into frequently. Hundreds of times we had our house broken into. My mom passed away of cancer when I was really young. My dad left our family when I was, uh, even before my mom passed away. Went in to live with a foster family for a while, was psychologically abusive, and, and that's the sort of trauma I come from. But one, one thing that was really easy for me was to just get distracted. So I, I started working out and I went to go play football. And it provided a really awesome distraction because hitting people as hard as you can is quite a, quite a distraction. And if it, it's, if it causes you pain, you get bonus points. So you got to think about your injuries now. But I, I did that for a while, and then I did play professional football for a while as well. And I got hurt there too, not part of the story. But coming out of that, I got right into ministry. So instead of finding something nice and peaceful to do, I decided to find the sort of spiritual version of football, which is plant a church. And I went and did banged my head against the wall for four more years doing that. And guess what? This last year, I got to take a break from that. But it wasn't so much of a break. I started dealing with lots of anxiety and stress and struggle. And I started meeting with a counselor who's great. He's a good friend of mine now. And he said one thing that was really important I thought maybe would be helpful for you. No matter what MacGuffin you're chasing or no matter what thing you're distracting yourself with, your trauma is always waiting for you. 
No matter how long you decide you're going to put this off, it's always waiting. So for the younger people in the room, I just want to ask this question. Do you think you can go 60 more years like this? Because that's a long time to be under this sort of stress and pressure. It's so difficult. And for the people that are maybe at the edge of yourself, do you really think you can keep going at this alone? Because Paul says you can't. And for those of you maybe who find yourself in the midst of your junk right now, do you think you can get out of this without ever fleeing the youthful passions that are captivating in your heart? That's where I found myself. Many of you may find yourself there as well. So what's Paul's answer? Be used by God. Be used by God. He says, pursue holiness. Look for things that are positive. Run from those hard things and go to the good things and become useful for the master's house. Now the natural question, and I'll end here, is why? Why do I need Jesus and not one of those blogs? I mean, a lot of people I know have gotten by by finding those blogs, finding a sound bath or bizarre sort of a prayer labyrinth situation or a, an Eastern Orthodox religion. Why? How can I, why couldn't I use one of those? One, people are not honest about their trauma with you because they are all struggling and they're not telling you. Two, how's it going for you? How is it working out? Are you at the edge of yourself or are you comfortable with it way down here and like living on the surface with people? And the third thing, why be used by God? Because that's what you're created for. That's what you're created for. I could really do well using my car keys as a doorstop, but they function a lot better when I put them in the ignition of my car. You, when you begin to live a life in synchrony with the way God has created you, you will begin to unlock a way of life that will feel so much more congruent with who you feel like you are inside. When you're living a life outside of God's alignment and environment for you, you may be able to get by for a while, for a season. You can white knuckle for years and years and years, but I'm telling you right now, your, your trauma is always waiting for you. And when you're ready to deal with it, Jesus is ready to deal with it as well. The good news is that our ability to handle the waves and anxiety and stress in this world come from a very reliable and trustworthy source. They don't have to come from within or from a blog. Our ability to handle anxiety in this world stems not from our own courage, but from a separate power source named Jesus. Jesus isn't just a guy who lived in Galilee and lived a life and died. By the power of the Holy Spirit, his power emanates through the believer, literal power, to give you the strength and the endurance to persevere. It's just like John chapter 15. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. The branches don't have life apart from the vine. A lot of us have cutting off ourselves and we're branches laying on the ground trying to live and we're not connected to what we need to be to live. And tonight, today, this morning, you have an opportunity to then embrace that once more. Now, it might not just happen in a, like a, a wave over you right this second, I understand that. But today could be the first step you take to beginning a life that lives after Jesus, a real power source. You may be sitting here and you say you've tried everything. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me, the, to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. Have you tried that? 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are so many people struggling in here today. We carry the weight on our shoulders, the weight on our world to try to white knuckle through life, Lord God, but the anxiety on our souls is at a boiling point. Lord, this moment, just even for this day, Lord, would you relieve that anxiety? Would you supernaturally just help people relax and then give a gentle nudge in the direction of you and your son who might continue us forward, that we might taste and see that you're good and put us on a new path, one of healing, so when we meet our trauma, we can bury our trauma with you on the cross and rise to new life. In Jesus' name, amen.